Well, hello, Linda. Lovely to have you here with me today. Happy to be here, Nancy. How are you? I'm great. And I know we're both excited to do things a little differently on the pod today. There'll be no roundtable discussion, and that's because we're debuting a new series called Behind the Brand. Going back to our annual predictions report, we said that 2023 is the year in which Behind the Brand, we called it BTB, because we like as many acronyms as possible, uh, (laughs) will become a staple theme in every content marketing strategy. We're certainly making it a theme of our own strategy because we're using this as an opportunity to pull the curtain back on an iconic brand, a Red Havas client that folks may have heard of before, Kellogg's. Yes, indeed, we all have certainly heard of Kellogg. I recall so many mornings happily crunching on cornflakes, and if I'm honest, snacking on way too many classic Pringles in the afternoon. I mean, seriously, is there anything better than Pringles for a snack? No. (laughs) So this month, absolutely, we are going behind the brand that many of us feel pretty familiar with. And rather than bring in several voices to weigh in on the topic, which is our normal format on the podcast, I had the opportunity to speak one-on-one with our guest. Ah, who did you speak to? So we were able to gain an audience with Granier O'Brien, who currently serves as Senior Director of Corporate Affairs for Kellogg's Europe. However, in July, she'll be taking on a new role as Vice President of Corporate Reputation and KNA Communications for Kellogg. Didn't Kellogg's recently announce that it will soon become two companies? They did indeed. Kellanova will serve as the global snacking powerhouse with a leading presence in international cereal and noodles, plant-based foods, and North America frozen breakfast, while WK Kellogg Company will become the North America food company. Those names honor really the rich heritage of Kellogg's while also reflecting, you know, a new beginning. And while the Kellogg company name will change, the company has assured customers that the brands they know and love are here to stay. Yeah, and to your point about heritage, I know that they were founded back in 1906. So it is pretty neat to see a 100-year-old plus company continue to reimagine its business and stay relevant to its customers today. So tell us what the two of you spoke about. Well, my conversation with Garnier really spanned a couple of different topics including her career journey, lessons she's learned in setting up a regional communications function, getting the best work from her team and her agencies, and not surprising, given the recent announcement, her advice on navigating splits, bins, and other pivots. So maybe without further ado, we just cut to my chat with her. Yeah, definitely. Sounds like a plan, Linda. Thanks, Nance. Granier, welcome to the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. Thanks, Linda. Delighted to be here. I thought we would start our conversation today with your career journey. So I'm curious, how did you get to where you are today? So I'd say, Linda, I've always been interested in news and current affairs. When I was growing up, I grew up in Northern Ireland and in the northwest of Ireland at a time when the troubles were a very real phenomenon, still live. My father was involved in the early civil rights movement with people like John Hume and Seamus Mallon. And my brother was a journalist. So I guess current affairs and live politics has always been something of interest to me. Tell me a little bit when you say focusing on journalism, when did you decide to kind of move into more of the PR communications and corporate type work? 
So I studied uh, media studies and history, and then I did study in Galway journalism and PR. I started off in local radio stations and my local newspaper. But I really was trying to get to Dublin, actually, out of the rural Ireland. And that's where I moved to work as a press officer with our Young Farmers Organization, which took me into the world of agri-food, as we would call it. So it was at that time then I later jumped to agency land and started to work with many of our larger food and agricultural clients and Irish PLCs at the time. And I really loved the pace of agency and the variety of work. And, you know, you could build a good, strong relationship with a range of different journalists. So that's how I made the jump to the other side. And then you made yet another jump going from agency life to the world of corporate affairs and corporate communications when you joined Kellogg Europe. Now, you initially joined to lead external communications and brand PR for Europe. Then you took on a larger role to lead corporate affairs. So tell us a little bit about that, making that transition right from agency life to the brand side and coming at a time when there's been so much change in the world of communications and corporate affairs. How did you approach ensuring that your team was fit for purpose. In terms of the switch and my journey, Kellogg had been a client of mine in agency land. So like many people who make that journey, I jumped when a very nice client asked me to. And I I always admired culture in Kellogg and the people that I worked with. And I think that's always a good sign of a great place to work. As you say, when I initially joined Kellogg, I joined to lead the external comms work that we were doing across Europe. And that was really about trying to identify the right stories to tell around our brands across various different markets. We were strong in some markets and weaker in others. And it was about trying to build a team that could do that. And and I did that to some success. But I would say at the time, I think as a function, we were quite siloed. We also had various different reporting lines. So I don't think we were really operating as one team. As you say, then I had the opportunity to take over to lead the function. And that was one of the things I tried to fix first, that we were one team reporting into the function together so that we didn't have mixed priorities. And then I sort of created a vision for the team, which was having a best-in-class agency-style in-house team. And that rally cry kind of unified us all. And we built a team across the region. We already had a very strong team in the UK and Ireland. We we needed to build that muscle across Europe. And that's what we've successfully done, always aligned to the commercial priorities of the business. So across public affairs, across ESG, across internal and external comms, we're united that everything we do should ladder up to the commercial priorities of the business. I'm so glad you brought that point up. I recently sat down with Doug Simon from DS Media, and we talked about the importance of communications and PR professionals, understanding the language of business, and being able to contextualize what we're doing with communications and how it can help drive the business forward. And it's about being sure the in-house teams understand that, but also cascading that to agency partners. So everyone is speaking the same language and connecting the dots between 
the communications metrics, but what does this mean to whatever the business priorities are? I think that's incredibly important. And I think we've invested a lot in measurement in my time in the role, because while we've always measured media impressions and message cut through and and all of that good stuff, it's harder, we all know it, to measure the impact in the business. So we've invested a lot in mutation tracking. We use the RepTrack model to demonstrate where we're having an impact, what stories are cutting through consumers, where have we bigger opportunities, where are we scoring less well, market by market, and we do quite deep tracking in some markets and our priority markets. And that's really helped inform the types of stories that we tell and how we tell them. And actually, it has an impact across leadership because once you, the, more, the more you can demonstrate you know, your improved reach or your improved impact, the more you can argue for funds to execute and, and the business takes notice. And the more insights you can distill, right, about what is happening in those markets and having your pulse on those markets, that's invaluable intel for sales and for other functions in terms of consumer preferences, right? How expectations are shifting. So then the company can pivot on its front foot versus just always being in a reactive mode. Yeah. And it's the multiplicity of channels we're using today Mm -hmm. as well. So it's, it's no longer old school, traditional PR versus social. It's all one. So working together with your media teams and your content creation teams and the agencies that are good in those spaces to have a positive effect in the work that we are doing. You and I both have worked on the brand side and the agency side. We're just in different different sides of the table today. So I'm curious, if there was one piece of advice you would give to your colleagues in-house or brand marketers that are currently sitting in-house about how to get the best work from their agency partners, what might that be? I think the focus on what you're doing is incredibly important. So what are you doing and why are you doing it? So for me, you know, doing PR for the sake of doing PR is very old school thinking. I think it's so hard to cut through now that, you know, you really want to work with agencies, partners who help you be authentic and help you create the content and the stories that will connect your brand or your company to consumers. I mean, that's that's what it's all about. And that's harder and harder to do. There's so much noise out there. And I think for in-house teams, I would say be really clear about what you want to achieve. And do you have a track record in this space? And have you done the work to tell the stories? So to pick two examples, I think the hunger work that we've done recently, that we've created in-house, you know, we've done research across seven markets that talks about the need state and how food poverty is increasing. We're seeing it in classrooms. We are seeing it in the breakfast clubs we work with. So we have a track record and we have a right to tell that story. We executed that story ourselves with some help from agency partners in market, and we've had incredibly strong results. Likewise, on a brand like Pringles, you know, the partnership we have around Movember, men's mental health, and the work that we do with Havas around that in various markets. Again, we have a right to play in that space because we've had that partnership for quite some time. It works for the brand. It speaks to the loyal consumer base of that brand. So I think both are examples of how we can execute in-house in an area where we know we're very strong 
and where we need partners and partnerships to cut through and engage the consumer. I think the point you made about really being authentic, knowing where you can play, having the data and the proof points, and then being intentional with the partners you bring to the table. And I will note for listeners, we will have links to the work that Granier mentioned in our show notes. So you mentioned there's a lot of noise out there, and there certainly has been over the past couple of years between what we call it the three Ps, right? The pandemic, polarizing politics in many countries, protests around social inequity, lack of access in in so many different areas. And we also see today more communities, employees are expecting companies to take a stand on many complex societal issues, whether it's voting rights or to your point, food poverty, gender pay gaps, disparities in access to education or around climate. And it puts really communications leaders like yourself in the center of the boardroom. What does this mean to the business narrative? What does it mean to strategy, to reputation, to even how we go to market? So I'm curious about how these developments have changed the perception and the role of your team internally. You know, I think if we looked in the rearview mirror and thought we would see what we've seen, I mean, no, no, I wouldn't have believed myself. (laughs) You know, we've had war in our region. We've had a global pandemic. We have the most polarized political atmosphere than, you know, ever before, I I would argue. And, you know, we've had to pivot our teams to remote working and back again. So there's good and bad in that for corporate affairs professionals. I think we've played a hugely important role. And as you say, in many cases, and certainly in Kellogg, at the top leadership tables in helping our employees and helping our companies navigate all of that. What it has meant as well is there's been almost a period of over-communication, I would say, through the pandemic. We had to make sure our employees knew they were okay, you know, that we were doing something around the pandemic, that we were purposeful at the core of the business. And as you say in your own trends report, employees have lost so much trust in media and political stakeholders and everything external. They're almost looking to you as an employer to have a point of view. And luckily in Kellogg, we do have a point of view. Purpose is at the core of our business. We've always had that. You know, our vision and purpose is built around a good and just world where people are not just fed, but fulfilled. And on our purpose is creating better days and a place at the table for everyone through our trusted food brands. So, you know, our employees are very proud of that. And they expect us to to take action on issues where we have a track record. And I think that's a fundamentally important point. You can't have a point of view on everything, but we do have a very strong grasp of the EDI issues that matter. And again, the ESG Better Days platform that is our ESG strategy. So that helps guide us on where we should have a point of view and where we don't need to be vocal per se. And have you put in a process? So, you know, you you talked about having the vision and the purpose as the framework for making that evaluation. So what's the process like, you know, in terms of the stakeholders involved? And is it just internal folks? Do you tap external stakeholders to help inform and shape when and how you engage around these issues? So we, we actually have put a process in place because 
we felt that, that was the right thing to do. I mean, our brands are world famous. They they have long histories. And whoever is a particular brand manager at a given time is, is only a custodian of the brand. And obviously our, our company history is long and strong. So we did put a process in place and we ask ourselves a set of questions, whether we think a partnership would be deemed low risk or high risk. And if the proposal or the idea is deemed high risk, well, then we do go through a process to challenge ourselves around, do we have a track record in this space? Does it make sense for the brand? Would it make sense to consumers? And we want to avoid accusations such as greenwashing and those things. So we we would also quite often refer to partners or take external advice or indeed talk to our own employee resource groups around their thoughts. So that's the process we've put in place and it works very effectively. Uh, I love the fact that you're tapping your employee resource groups for input because they really have their pulse right on what's happening internally, but also tend to be very active externally. So it gives you that full 360 complement to bring to the table. Kellogg's does seem to be so thoughtful and humble. It is a storied brand with a legacy and just around the commitment that you have around hunger and the work with the breakfast clubs and the fact that you'd go to the length of multi-market research to really help understand and find more solutions to it just demonstrates it's not just you're saying this, but you're actually following through. So I'm curious, what are some of the other ways that you help employees and other stakeholders and your shareholders connect the dots between commitments that you've made and the actual work that's happening so that they see the proof and they see that the follow through? So I'd answer that in two ways. I mean, we have a set of ESG commitments which are measured and tracked. We've recently put a governance structure in place around that just to make sure that, you know, what the regions are doing is laddering up to what the global team are doing. So we have global and regional ESG councils. We've in fact looked at our goals and our commitments and we've revised some. So that work is ongoing. Obviously, we have audit and everything across that just to make sure that We are tracking as we should and we are communicating as we should. I think the other thing we have is, you know, we we have strong employee resource groups who are very passionate about some of our internal goals and the goals we've made internally, the commitments we've made internally. So to use an example, in Europe, we made a commitment around gender 50-50 that we would meet gender parity from our manager level and below by 2025. We have, in fact, succeeded in that goal as of December 2022. So we were delighted to hit that early. And it's been hugely motivating for the teams across the business. So we've more work to do in that space and we'll continue to achieve that target. But it's been phenomenally motivating. And we've used external organisations such as LEAD to help us learn best practice and to bring those policies into the business that matter to employees like menopause and fertility policies, flexible leave arrangements, parental leave, all of those things that helped us on the journey to achieve that milestone. Congratulations on that milestone. And when when we think about today's workplace spanning five generations, 
right? It's how do we address the issues relevant to every generation? And menopause certainly is one that is top of mind for many in my generation. And that you also have regional councils, which signals to me that you're not just thinking of issues as they are at like the Uber level, but being sure that also thinking from like the bottom up and because, you know, issues of diversity will play out in not the same way in every country. Exactly. They're different. So in, in Europe, we've got our multicultural work, mm-hmm. our employee resource group in the U.S. We've our Kellogg African-American resource group and we've HOLA, our Latino grouping as well. So I think they're nuanced by market and region. So, you know, we have the right employee resource groups in the regions and they ladder up to where we should be looking in terms of policy changes and we're actively listening and I think it's very engaging for our employees. Again, you brought up listening and then reporting back. So you're closing the loop and demonstrating to employees and to communities through your reporting that there is that ongoing feedback and the transparency. So while we can continue to talk about all of this, which is fascinating, I do want to move on to another topic, change-related, because Kellogg made news by announcing it will formally split into two separate businesses. The North American cereal business will be known once the split is final as W.K. Kellogg Company in homage to the company's founder, and the Global Snacking, International Cereal and Noodles, plant-based foods and North American frozen breakfast businesses will form the basis for a new global snacking company called Kalanova. And you, in fact, will be moving into a new role later this year as vice president for corporate reputation and KNA communication. What an exciting time for the company and for you. So first, congratulations. Thank you. And it is a phenomenally exciting time to work at Kellogg. You know, it's been an interesting 12 months. And to see a company of such legacy pivot and, you know, and reimagine itself and how to stay relevant is also very inspiring. But this is also massive change coming on the heels of several challenging years. We endured so much as we talked about before, the pandemic, economic crises, a war that's broken out in the Ukraine. And so many people are kind of pushed like to change exhaustion, I would say, not even just fatigue. So I'm curious as you're communicating internally about the go forward model, you know, how do you break through and combat change fatigue and communicate through splits, spins, or other types of catalysts of disruption in a business? I would say, look, I think it's been a masterclass in how to do it. And I'm paying homage to our senior VP, Chris Boehner, who's led this work with our CEO and chairman and the executive committee. It's been seismic change, communicating the split and the spin. And everyone that works with Kellogg loves the company. So we we all love the Kellogg name and the journey around the new names was worrying for some. And I'll be honest about that. But We did engage with our employees in terms of asking for name suggestions for both companies. So that was a very active process once we had announced the intention to split and spin. That was part of the engagement program was asking all of our employees for suggestions. And I think, I hope I get the number right, but I think we got over 4,000 suggestions from our employees. And I think what everyone wanted to 
retain with a bit of the heritage. So the fact that we retained the K in Kelanova, mm-hmm. but yet it speaks to the modernity of where we're going. And then North American Cereal Company retains WK Kellogg Company, which was speaks to obviously our founder. You know, I'm not going to say everyone was happy, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I think people were as happy as they could be. And I think, you know, Kelanova speaks to the future, which is where International Snack Co. will go. I think there's been a really regular cadence of comms throughout the whole process. And speaking from a region, it's quite different for us in Europe because the change that we will undergo is is, is significantly less than our colleagues in Kellogg North America and elsewhere. So there has been a regular cadence of comms. There have been town halls, there have been surveys, and the company has been very open and honest throughout the process. And even when we didn't have a lot of news, we engaged. And I think that has brought people through the change. So I think people are optimistic for the future. And as I say, I think it's been a masterclass in in how to do it. You made such a good point that even when there wasn't new news, you kept communicating because nothing is worse than a vacuum. And People start, you know, making assumptions and it creates just a lot of negative choice and distraction. So I think that is a really important point because what I remember when I was in-house, some leaders would say, but we have nothing new. Like why put a meeting on the calendar? And even if it's for 15 or 20 minutes, just to reinforce what we last told you, where we are, no major developments, but we'll continue to keep you informed and just again, to keep that connection open and make employees and other key stakeholders feel that they're still in the know and valued. And I think that's what was really appreciated. So even if we didn't have significant news, we might have had the ability to confirm the timings of when Mm -hmm. the next pieces would happen. I think those small things really did help. And also in every forum, we continue to ask questions and hear the voice of of our employees and what was on their mind, which helped us. And I would say as well, we worked with Brunswick externally who, you know, do this type of work and we had change experts in terms of E&Y, et cetera. So we've had a lot of people at the table, external advisors who helped us shape the process. So as you are about to start a new chapter in your career, I thought we might close with a few career-related lightning round questions. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. First, what's your superpower? I don't think I have a superpower, to be honest. Uh, You know, but what I would say is I'm always authentic. You know, I think it's great to work with people you like and to be kind even if it's a demanding, high-paced environment. I try to be authentic. I try and meet people where they are, understand what's going on in their personal lives, and at the same time, deliver for the business. So if you ask anyone about me, they'll say, what you see is what you get. I love that. Okay, next. What's the most useful career advice you've ever received? I think, think keep it simple and know your audience are two that I live by. So if I can't understand what you're telling me, nobody can understand what you're telling. We want to tell them. So I think that's important. The simpler, the better. And know your audience. Know your audience. It's so important. If you're engaging with consumers, it's very different to having a conversation with stakeholders, with employees. Those two rules will help you always get it right. And as you said, as part of your superpower, meet people where they are. That says it all. Okay. Third. 
what hard or soft skill has helped you succeed the most in your career? For me, it's listening and EQ. So I think people say they listen when they don't actually listen. I think active listening, understanding the dynamics of a room are incredibly important. And then how do you navigate a matrix organization? And you need a lot of EQ to do that. And some people do it very well. It's one of the things I've always managed to do is understand my network externally and internally. And, you know, you just, you deliver so much more by knowing who to work with, knowing how to ask for something, knowing how to navigate the organization. But I think EQ can be learned, but it's, you know, I think it comes naturally to some people as well. I do want to touch on, you mentioned your internal network and your external network. And that's, I think, a point sometimes that often gets overlooked because so many of us have busy days and there's a tendency we just keep, particularly among women, we keep our head down and do good work and forget to lift our head up and and keep abreast of like what is happening outside. And so I'm so glad you mentioned the networking internally and externally because I think that's such an important investment in our development, in our career, in our growth is to maintain those relationships and use them to navigate the internal politics, but also how do we keep our pulse on everything else happening that can shape the value we bring internally and the insights that we have? I think that's incredibly important. And as someone who's in-house, I may have let my network slip from time to time. But I think as you look at the ESG agenda, you know, we all have to be curious. We all have to be constantly learning to stay abreast of how things mm-hmm. are changing. And and you can only do that through partnership, through external relationships and keeping that network alive and, and, and being constantly curious to read the right publications, read the right research. And it's only by doing that that you can give the right advice within the business. Because if you're not looking up and out, then you can't appropriately advise within the business. And that really in, in our knowledge-based economy and workplace today, it's our insights, it's our network. Those are the currencies that make us valuable and compelling. And I used to say, you know, I'm willing to learn new things and unlearn old ways because the way we work has changed. And, and even the lexicon we use in our organizations may shift as leaders shift and bring a new vision. And it may be similar to the old vision, but just a different language. And, and how do we adapt to that? Okay, so final question. Do you have a mantra or a favorite quote that you live by? There's a couple of things. I think education, education, education stays with me because my dad was a teacher. And, you know, this idea of needing to constantly learn is, stays with me. And, I, you know, I say to my kids, be the best that you can be, which <laughs> I don't know whether it's working or not. We'll have to wait and see on that. You know, if you're constantly learning and if you're trying your best, there's not a lot can go wrong, I would say. What I would say to myself sometimes just to get through stuff, and I used to run marathons, I used to run a lot, you know, and it, it, it's this idea of having a mantra that just gets you through it. And, and mine was as simple as you can do it, G, as you try and push through. So no matter what you face in life, the idea that you can do it, that, you know, you've run a marathon, you've had kids, there's nothing hard. <laughs> you know, I think that idea is 
something that just gives me focus when I'm facing a difficult task is like, you can do it, G. Well, we know that you can do it, G. <laughs> um, you've demonstrated that. Well, again, thank you, Granier, for joining us on today's episode of Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. We hope you'll come back and update us on your next career adventure and show us how you're continuing to push through. So appreciate your insights today. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. You can subscribe to the show using your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. And don't forget to rate and review today's show to let us know how we're doing. We hope you'll join us again for more of the latest communications, insights, and trends from the team at Red Havas.